Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you can hear me. And welcome to some Mass this morning. If, I, if you're new with us this morning, my name's Kurt. I'm the Minister of the Church, and I'm back from holiday. So as you can see right now, I've got a bit of a winter tan because I spent a couple of weeks up at Evans Head, which was beautiful, beautiful weather. Absolutely amazing. So praise God. If you were praying for our holiday, your prayers were answered. It was an incredible couple of weeks. And so thank you. Uh, we are back, and uh, we're thinking about... Uh, with the leadership, whether to start meeting again together. Uh, so we're going to meet with Ted, who's kind of leading the team to make that happen. I'm going to meet with him yesterday. He's still on holidays at the moment. Um, and then we'll start thinking. Now, since I left, a whole bunch of different things have changed as far as COVID down in Victoria and its effect in Sydney. And so it's this constantly changing environment that we're working with. Um, but we'll keep walking slowly in that direction of meeting again together, uh, trying to figure out what the best way to, to do is. Um, as far as Wall Street and the replacement for Josh, Josh Ackland up at Wall Street, another minister up there, uh, a couple of uh, writers at the moment working with a couple of guys, interviewing a couple of guys. And so please be praying for that process um, that Rod would be, uh, we'd be make a really wise choice on who could take Josh's place beginning next year. Um, and I just want to say to everyone here, it's really strange as your pastor to kind of be functioning virtually uh, and not be seeing you on a Sunday face to face. Uh, and so if you have any needs or requests, um, if you want to have a conversation with me at all, just remember that my phone is available and I am open. So that's okay. So this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. So uh, of course we went to Mark chapter 13 when I went away because I had to do that up at Wall Street. Now we're reversing back to Mark chapter 10 today. So let me... Um, pray and then we'll look at this passage let me go father god we just want to praise you and thank you for a chance to sit under your word this morning and to have you speak to us uh, father as these accounts of jesus come there there's nothing greater than to see what the lord jesus did while he was on earth and so we pray you just bless us this morning and help us understand what you have to say we pray in jesus name amen well the reason you have that strange slide up in front of you at the moment with me with the Cuisinant tower is because today we're talking about greatness. And I went look through, looking through my photos of a picture of greatness, and this is the one I found. A picture of uh, this, of me building a tower, even in my old age. See, I think we have this perpetual desire to be great. And it, I don't think it's just me. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I wanted to be the greatest rugby league player there was. I wanted to be the greatest tennis player there was. I wanted to be the greatest basketballer soccer player, rock star, inventor, and the list could just go on and on and on. I had this perpetual desire to be great. Now, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you didn't want to be great in the sense that you wanted everyone to know you were great and be up on a stage or on in the center of a court. Um, but we all have this desire, don't we, to be, to, have, to be great at something, to be great in our lives, to do well in our lives, to live the best life we can live. Now, this passage this morning is about true greatness, true greatness. And it's not about sporting success, it's not about political success, it's not about even developing a massive tower of Cuisinair rods. Uh, Jesus claims that the greatest person is the servant of all. And this morning, this passage is going to ask us the question, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the greatest is the one who serves? So if you're new with us, the last few weeks we've been looking at Mark's account 
of Jesus' life. Now, we picked it up in chapter, end of chapter 8, where Peter, one of Jesus' disciples of, of the last, uh, probably been with him for a couple of months, maybe a year, he, he starts to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. That is, Jesus is the one who was spoken about in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, this promised king who would come to save God's people. Now, the question is, as you're going on from chapter 8 is, what type of king is Jesus? See, they thought, the people at the time thought, that the king who was going to come, the promised king, was going to be like a Roman, uh, sorry, sorry, was going to be like a military leader. And he was going to come and kick the butts of the Roman oppressors. So that's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping. Hoping someone to wipe out the Romans. But Jesus comes. He, these guys recognize that he is the Christ. But then he keeps talking about that his kingdom comes through suffering, through dying, and through resurrection. Suffering, dying, resurrection. They're thinking, that's not a kick-butt king. And so as we keep reading, we see because of the nature of his kingdom, that is, is one that comes through suffering, dying and rising again, it changes two things. It changes the way to enter into the kingdom and it changes the way to live in the kingdom. So first, the, it changes the way to enter into the kingdom. We saw a couple of weeks ago in the account of the rich young ruler that it's impossible for us to enter God's kingdom that is to be in right relationship with God for, for eternity by doing things ourselves, by either being rich or being really, really moral. That The story was all about the fact that we can do nothing. We can offer nothing that will enable our entry into God's kingdom, a right relationship with Him. However, we saw in that end of that story, Jesus says, God has made the impossible possible. That the reason we can enter into God's kingdom, right relationship with Him, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' death takes the punishment for our sins and His life is given to us, united to us by faith, so that we have a, a, an eternal life in relationship with God, a, a righteous life in relationship with God. See, when we trust in Jesus, we enter into the kingdom through His death and resurrection. But secondly, today, we're going to see that's not only the way to enter into the kingdom, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection is the way to live in the kingdom. It's the way to live in the kingdom. Jesus' death and resurrection is this kind of, in a sense, a model for how to live in right relationship with God. A life marked by service. And so Jesus explains, as we picked up the passage today, Jesus is back on about trying to explain to the disciples, this is the type of king I am. This is the type of king I am. That he was the first who came to be last. So pick it up with me in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now, at this point, they're still in awe of what Jesus said. Uh, that, that, that the people who do the right things are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's only through Jesus um, and so they're a little amazed by that. They're a little bit confused by that. And at the same time, they're still, Jesus knows the reason they're so confused about it is because they still don't get what type of king he is. They still don't get it. And so he says it again to them, verse 32b. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. 
He's saying to them, guys, you need to understand this. This is a critical thing. You need to know what type of king I am because it determines the kingdom that I'm establishing. He says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. I'm going to be mistreated, abused, beaten, crucified. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. Jesus says, that's the type of king I am. But the disciples don't get it. They still don't get it. They hear Jesus says, saying, we're going up to Jerusalem. And they're thinking to themselves, now is the time where the kick-butt king is going to take over the Romans. He's going to wipe them out. Now is the time he's going to bring liberation and freedom to God's people. Now, my sense is, is they don't completely ignore what he says. They're kind of, uh, they're kind of selective hearing in what he says, or they're kind of reinterpreting what he says in light of what they think he should be. Now, my guess is when he speaks about his death and resurrection, they're thinking to themselves, Jesus is saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem to take on the Romans. I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to come back and then we're going to rule together in the kingdom. So Jerusalem and and, and, and its liberation is only about a week away. I might suffer defeat, but I'll get up again. I think it's a little bit like Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up because I don't know who he is. But Hulk Hogan was a, a wrestler, a WWF wrestler from the 80s, 90s. And I think he just kept going and going and going as he got older. But he's always there. One of the marks of, of a wrestling match with Hulk Hogan in it was there was always a point in the match where he was like this slide. All right, He was down on the mat. He looked like he was completely out of it, completely gone. And then all of a sudden, he'd start hulking up. All right, And he'd, like this. he'd start hulking. All right, and you knew at that point in the match that there was going to be this magical turnaround and he looked like he was dead and he'd come back to life and then he'd win the match. Okay, It's like a Rocky movie as well. Watch a Rocky movie. The music, it's all, <coughs> it's all going poorly for Rocky and then, <coughs> and then all of a sudden the music changes and Rocky comes back and he defeats Ivan Drago or her defeats. He'll look completely out of it and then he'll come back. I think the disciples think the same about Jesus here. They think he's going to hulk up. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be down on the mat for a while, taking out the Romans. But then he's going to hulk up and come back to life and liberate them. And so they say to him, Jesus, if you're going to be first in a moment, in a week's time, you're going to be first, then, hey, can we have some positions with you? So the disciples want to be first. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, they have a lot of faith in him, don't they? They say, no, Jesus, you're going to be in a glorious position soon. You're you're going to be there. And so they come up to him, and it sounds like they give quite an arrogant request. They're saying, hey, give us the spots next to you, left and right, second in charge, when you're the king of the world. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them, doesn't he? He goes, you arrogant boys, what are you going on about? See, I think the reason is because they had actually listened to what Jesus had said. If you go back to Jesus speaking about the, the way he talks about the children entering the kingdom of God, what marked the children was that they asked. They asked to receive the kingdom. And so James and John come up almost childlike and they say, Jesus, we want the best position of your kingdom. If this is a kingdom where you ask me to be a part of it, then we're asking for the best positions. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He says, it's not wrong that you're asking me this. But he says to them, you don't know what you're asking for. 
You don't get what you're asking for. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Jesus says to them, you don't get it. You're not getting it. To share my greatness means to share my path or my road to getting there. And, and it means, and he gives two metaphors, it means drinking the cup he drinks and it means being baptized with him, like with the baptism that he will go through. Now, these two metaphors are speaking about death, suffering and death. The, the cup is a picture of God's judgment or cup of wrath being poured out. And it's a picture of suffering and God's judgment. And the baptism is a picture of, of, of life ending, of going under the waters and drowning in a sense of, of, of life ending. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. Now, still, I don't think they get what he's talking about, but what they're saying is this, whatever it is, Jesus, we're up to the task. It doesn't matter what you say whatever metaphors whatever your metaphors are pointing to we're up for it we're willing to fight for you we're going to fight for you jesus we're going to suffer for you we're going to die for the cause and so jesus says to them guys you will you will verse 39 and jesus said to them the cup that i drink you will drink and the baptism with which i am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. All right, now all these guys are wanting to be first at this stage. But James and John come up with the idea. They've asked Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, yeah, you will suffer. Yeah, you will die, but not now, in the future. So as you read through the Bible and you hear about what happened in ancient, uh, like uh, early church history, you find out that James was the first martyr. Uh, he was beheaded for following Jesus and speaking about Jesus. And then John, they tried to kill him a number of times and then eventually he was exiled in Patmos. And so he suffered for Jesus. And so Jesus says to these guys, yes, you will. But he says, the positions in my kingdom don't come through request. It's not like, you know, when your kids run out to the car and someone says, bags the front seat, bags the front seat, bags the front seat. It's not like that with this, all right? Jesus says they are, and I've never really noticed this phrase, he says they are prepared by my Father. Prepared by my Father. Now, I think that phrase is crucial. What Jesus is saying is, is that Jesus' kingdom has been prepared from before the beginning of the world. Which means Jesus' death and resurrection, that the way the kingdom is coming about, had been planned as well before the world began. Now, this is important to note. Sometimes we can speak about Jesus' message, like he said the cross was God's plan B, all right? Like it, like it was a detour that he, God created the world and then it got broken because of sin. So he created the world, it got broken because of sin, so it went off to the side, and so God had to enact a plan B detour to get us to where we needed to be. Okay, to get rid of sin through Jesus' death on the cross to get us to where we need to be. But Jesus says his coming to die for our sin was plan A. It was what was prepared from before the beginning of the world. That God's plan from, was from all eternity for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom through the death on a cross. That all existence is focused and pointing to the cross as its culmination. That the ultimate expression of that God's plan to display his glory, his greatness, and his plan for the greatest existence 
was for Jesus to come and be a servant. That struck me this week. That that God's plan from, from all time, the greatest display of God's glory, He decided from all eternity past, was to be displayed in service of others. Service. Servants. For Jesus to be the ultimate service. And that changes the way you understand power and purpose in life. So verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, the disciples, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he says, You know in the world, the people who are in charge are the ones who use their power over others. Um, They make people serve them. That's what make them rulers. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He says, if you want to be great, then you should aspire not to get people to serve you, but you should aspire to be the person who serves anyone and everyone, regardless of race or culture or age or gender or sexuality or religion or personality greatness in jesus kingdom is not based on how many people are under you that serve you it's by how many people you serve greatness is not in your success greatness is in how many people you enable to succeed you help to succeed now why is that verse 45 for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so the Son of Man here is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, written about 800 years or six to 800 years before Jesus. And Daniel has this vision of a Son of Man, this great glorious figure who is given from God the Father, rule over an eternal kingdom, rule over the entire universe. And so Jesus says, I am that ruler. I rule everything. I'm the king of it all. And I have come not to be served. That is, Jesus could have done that. He could have come to this world, entered in this world, taken his place as king of this world, made every, put everyone underneath him, tried to stamp out all the badness in the world, done it the way he He could have run it from the top down. But God's plan was for him to come and run it from the bottom up. To give up his life as a ransom for many. His death as a payment for our sins to be, so that we can be restored to God. God's plan from before all time was for Jesus to express his greatness through his ultimate service, his life for yours and mine. And so the way to enter the kingdom, trust in Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection to serve us is the way, is the way to live in the kingdom. That we, because of him, might serve like him all the people that we know. But here's the thing. Sometimes we can look like we're serving him, but we're really not. In reality, we're serving ourselves. And I think this is where it gets tricky in churches because there's lots of people who run around who are serving, including myself. And sometimes we're doing it not because of Jesus, but because we're doing it because of us. For instance, some people will serve to get fame. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Some people will serve to get fame. Now, in a church, to be a rock star, you be a servant. You be the person who's serving everyone. 
And some people will do that. They'll serve in order to be the person that everyone looks at and thinks, oh man, he is the greatest servant. She is the greatest servant we've got here. Some people will serve to get power. Although they appear to be the person who's stepping up to take the lead in serving others, they'll serve as a power move. You know, Hamish and Andy have those power moves, putting people in their place. They'll serve others as a power move by doing a whole bunch of stuff to make people feel guilty, to make people feel in their debt. Some people will serve to get comfort. And so they will do things to art for others. But when they've done something for, for you, then you cannot ask them to do anything else because you owe them. They want to just kind of pay you off with service so they can do what they want to do. They can have comfort. Now, I have a confession to make this morning. I, at various times, have been all of those some people. I think all of us struggle at different times, don't we? We, 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 we are not serving for Jesus we're serving ourselves. We're serving because of the cash value, what it gives us, whether it's comfort or power or, 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 or fame. And so the question is, how do I know? How do I know when my service has become about me and not about Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you a bunch of things. Look for these things. Firstly, bitterness. Bitterness. Look for bitterness. Are you consistently bitter at, the, at people not serving like you? You're looking at other people and thinking, hey, they're not doing what I'm doing. I'm doing all the work here and they're doing nothing. It doesn't seem fair that I have to do anything. Do you get bitter? Secondly, do you lack joy? Is there no joy in your service of others? Because it's, uh, because it, it's hard and you're not really connected with Jesus and serving because he served you. You're just kind of pushing it out, doing it, disconnected from Jesus. Is there impatience? Thirdly, is there impatience? Do you get impatient when people don't respond well to your service, you think to yourself, come on, I'm serving you. You should be doing the right thing. You should be acknowledging it or growing as a consequence of it. Do you get frustrated? Do you find yourself constantly frustrated with people's response to your service, feeling like they're taking you for granted? Five, do you have an inability to be served? Are you unwilling to allow other people to serve you? This is my classic one, all right? As the pastor, people will ask Kurt, hey, Kurt, how can I help you? Uh, and I'll constantly say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I think partly it's because I think I have to be the guy who is the servant. And so my whole identity is bound up in being the guy who is the servant. And so it's more about me being righteous, my own eyes, and it's not about Jesus at all. So even Jesus allowed other people to serve him. The woman at the well, he asked for a drink, for instance. Jesus, the greatest servant imaginable, didn't do everything himself, but he asked others to serve him. How can I not do likewise? That's ridiculous. See, if you'd say yes to any of those questions that I just asked you, all those different ways, all those different expressions, they're potentially an indicator that your service has become more about you and less about Jesus that you're doing it to get power or status or comfort. But if you know Jesus, we serve because he served us, not because what we get from it. Our reward at the end of the day is a deeper relationship with him, is knowing him, is becoming like him. And when we come to grips with how great he is, to the degree we do and what he's done for us, then it will both humble us and motivate us to serve others. The greatest is the one who serves.
And so if you are someone who has trusted in Jesus' death for you, then God from before all eternity has not just ordained you to be served by Jesus, but to serve like Jesus. That as you marvel and are humbled by his service of you, that your whole existence would likewise be focused on service of others. That your first question in all your relationships would not be, how am I being served in this relationship? But in every relationship, it's about how am I serving them? That your first question would not be, am I getting the status or the money or the promotions I deserve? That your first question would not be, is my spouse giving me the respect that I deserve or, or meeting my needs? Are my kids or parents or sisters or brothers giving me what I want? Are my friends putting themselves out for me? Are people caring and discipling and giving me positions of leadership in the church? See, it's not how am I being served, but how can I be the greatest servant in all the relationships I'm a part of? How can I serve them practically and wisely, stepping up when people need time, when people need resources, when people need skills, when people need friendship, when people need honesty and truth? Jesus ultimately serves us that we might serve others. We don't serve to be saved. We serve because we are saved. We are saved to become like Jesus, the greatest human being imaginable. And so I started with the question, and I think it's the check. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? Do you believe it this morning? Do you believe it? Some of you this morning have not put your trust in Jesus. You have not allowed Jesus to serve you. Instead, you're trying to, you think that by doing the right things, by serving God in a sense, not even though you don't really have a relationship with him, but by serving God and doing things that you're going to pay him off enough to get yourself into heaven. That's not the case. You need Jesus to serve you. And so if you have not put your trust in Jesus today, allow him to serve you and die as your ransom. But if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you know what it means to be served by him, then allow that relationship to motivate you, to inspire you, to propel you into this world to serve others. That we St. Matt's would be a church that is powerful in all our relationships, in this community, in our workplaces, in our homes, that we are known for being the greatest of servants. Let me pray. Father God, this is, a, this is a, a, such a challenging word, Lord, because it goes to the heart of who we how we live as human beings. So often we want to be served. So often we serve for ourselves and the gospel turns it upside down and shows us that we had to be served because we couldn't serve ourselves. We needed Jesus. And so it humbles us, but at the same time, it lifts us up to say, and now because of his service of us, we can, like him, serve others. Not for comfort or status or power, but because of the great reward we have in him. And so, Father, empower each one of the individuals who are here listening and watching today to have that mindset in all their relationships, in their homes, in their workplaces, in our church, in all their friendships, that they might have the heart of a servant connected and in relationship with the God and the, and, and the Lord Jesus who serves them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.